Listener Production. I'm automotive commentator and journalist Greg Rust, and this is Rusty's Garage. For this episode, I'm in what you might consider as the perfect man cave, particularly if you're a Porsche enthusiast. That word enthusiast probably isn't a good enough description for my guest today. Ron Goodman started out with a love of traditional Aussie cars, and he's raced other marks, as you'll hear, but developed a fondness for the German brand that has become obsession in a good way. And he is now a go-to for restoration and bodywork repairs on them, recognised internationally by Porsche for the quality work he and his team at Exclusive Bodyworks in Sydney turn out. Some of the things that I've seen on my visit are beyond beautiful. I actually first started the idea of this podcast about a year ago with the aim of timing the release around a trip that Ron was planning to the red centre of Australia in a restored 356 with a very special Indigenous paint scheme. You can find pics of that car on his social media. Ron regularly gives back and this mission was all about raising money and awareness for the Children's Hospital. Hardcore race fans may know him from Speedway and NASCAR, but some of you would have seen documentaries and in-flight specials on his classic racing in America, where he has wowed them, impressing not just with his racecraft and machinery, but the never-give-up approach when things don't quite go to plan. I won't spoil those yarns for you, see if you can find them online. The road to Monterey, for example, is an award-winning doco that charts his bid to tackle the Rolex Monterey reunion at the famed Laguna Seca circuit in California. An invite-only meet with some concourse-spec, incredibly rare race cars being used as the maker intended, despite their multi-million dollar values. Watkins Glen, Sebring and Road Atlanta. Ron's been there too and won and he's still hungry for more. To give you a sense of how he ticks, it's not uncommon for me to get a DM from him at some ungodly hour of the morning. That's because Ron's at work, well before sunup, continuing the hands-on, tireless ethic that he's known for. If I've joined the dots right from his social media, it looks like another doco movie is in the works too. He's always got a project. Now, for this chat, we sat down in an American diner-style booth in amongst his amazing collection of cars and memorabilia gathered from a life around racing and cars. Most of them, as you'd expect, have the iconic Porsche, Stuttgart, German badges on them. But there's a couple of other things, like a Mustang, some military machines, a tractor and even a combi that are all parked among them. This stuff naturally has a story or is close to his heart. People have come from all round the world to check out this collection and sign the Rennsport Festival autograph wall. And while authenticity is a hallmark of Ron's creations, he's not afraid to experiment either. Like the Porsche he entered in the Hot Wheels Legends 
with a plane engine in it and World War II aeronautical gauges. It is a work of art and finished in the top three in the Aussie leg of that comp. More on that later. We begin with the early influences that would set him on this wonderful path. I love to start these with a little story that sets the scene on on where you grew up and the connection, the first kind of recollection you might have about an engine, a car, or something that made you gravitate to these things that have become part of your life. It would be the old grey engine in the EK Holden that my grandfather gave us. Uh, we used to take it and paddock bash it, and we remember that we had a problem with it. Uh, remember we pulled it apart and we couldn't um, work out how to strip it right down and that was the end of that car. <laughs> but the beginning of a, a lot of love and a lot of learnings, you were in Liverpool, I think, at this stage, weren't you? were in that, that part of, of Western Sydney. Tell me about life growing up there and did the passion come from family for cars or where did you where did you find that and latch onto that? I grew up in Green Valley um, and we sort of all loved our cars out there. I love going to, to the Speedway every Saturday night. Liverpool. Liverpool Speedway, yeah. Uh, we'd get um, finish our football on the Saturday, go home, have a shower, and then I'd hobble up to the Speedway and watch the Speedway every Saturday night. This was a kid who was collecting the the early generations of, of tear-offs and things. You were You genuinely loved it, didn't you? Oh, I loved it. And and my hero was a um, guy named Eddie Gord. He drove the water truck. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, yeah, just, just to watch him run around with the water truck every day, we were wrapped in that. But yeah, you, you gravitate towards these older drivers. Well, they're my age now, but I suppose. But we gravitated towards these drivers that were just our heroes, like the Bruce Maxwell in the Chesterfield Mustang. A lot of these guys I still remember now, but you ask me guys that are racing now, I probably don't remember their names. It's a, it a really cool place. I can vividly recall going there with, with my parents, my dad especially, and they would open that big gate on the far side of the track and you could hear the cars coming, but you couldn't always see them and you, you more or less launched them over and down into the into the track, didn't you? Absolutely. And when I started racing there, that was exactly what you'd done. You'd, you'd come out of the pit. It was like riding a um, bull when you see him throw the gate open and you'd exhilarate out and if there was anything underneath you, you wouldn't even know. You'd just run over him, drive down into the pit and away you'd go, you know. So the first car that you talked about was the, you know, the EK, the family car. What about the first race car? How did you get enough money together for the race car? What was it? Race car or my demolition derby? Ah, let's start with that. Actually, that's, yeah, that's a part of the story that's important here. Tell me about demo derbies and what was the first one? We got so wrapped. We used to go up there and watch the demo derbies and, of course, I'd be the best driver in my head. (laughs) So I ended up uh, getting hold of an old Toyota. I can't even remember what model it was. It was a little shovel nose. And we thought that we'd do a little bit of uh, modifications to it to make it better. So we moved the petrol tank from in the back to the inside of the back seat. And where the petrol tank sat, we filled that up with cement. (laughs) So lo and behold, the first car that I hit, the the rear of the car just all come off up (laughs) over the roof, except for the rear rails and the cement blocks sticking out of the back of this car. I got disqualified for that, but ever since then I've always been caught for cheating by my cars, I suppose. But but that was my very, very, very first foray into racing was that car. And then uh, I ended up with a HG Monaro that we took into the stock cars, uh, which was called stock cars back then. Uh, I remember we'd done a lot of modifications to that car and 
my very first outing in in the car. I think uh, I started rear field, and I probably finished two laps down. Um, we were pulling it into third gear when you didn't have to. I didn't know that you just revved it out in second gear. So every time I'd pull it into third gear, the field would just leave me. And then I'd think, what the hell am I doing wrong? Uh, and on that same night, my wife's, uh, what well, was my girlfriend back then, uh, her brother said to me, roll it down the straight. And that's what happened to me at the end of the night. We ended up all the way down the straight on my roof. Oh, man. Didn't put you off the love of racing and, and some people that aren't into Speedway can't quite appreciate always, you know, the, they, they think of it as, I mean, you're just going round and round and how exciting can it be? But you obviously enjoyed going wheel to wheel with people, didn't you? Speedway to me, dirt racing, NASCAR, the whole lot is my forte. I love it. Yeah. I love the close to people racing, yeah. especially on the dirt. And I don't mind rubbing fenders with another car. I've been um, told that I do that a little bit too aggressively in in the road courses as well. But my way is if you're racing, you want to get to the end of that race as quick as you possibly can. And if the car in front is starting to balk you, well, things happen. (laughs) (laughs) The young Ron Goodman does what? You leave school at 16. What was your first job and and, uh, how were you getting the money together to go a little bit of motor racing? My very first job was uh, some friend of mine got me a job at uh, GE Electric at Enfield on Cosgrove Road. Whereas the fridge would come down the assembly line, I'd open the door, shut the door, open the door, shut the door. Quality control. Put a stamp on it and say that works. <laughs> yeah, that, that was my job. I, I think I lasted that at three weeks because on our way home there was uh, outside of smash repairs, it was uh, Stratfield smash repairs. They had a sign written on a bonnet in hand saying, boys wanted. So I went in, I got the job and I ended up being a panel better. So. Amazing. The the lifelong love of it now has grown into something quite significant, which we'll, which we'll talk about. Were you good at it straight away? And what did you do from a, a study point of view? Were you off to TAFE as it probably was back then? What did you do? Yeah, we used to do TAFE once a week. Uh, yeah, I took to it nicely because I'd done a bit of metal work at school. Mm-hmm. And I think it's like anything, if you have a passion or if you like what you're doing, it's not a chore and you do the best you possibly can at it and you're usually pretty good at it. I think that I'm half okay at repairing cars. You you way, way undersell yourself there and I gather that that sense of perfection probably crept in early on with with the work that you did. I mean, the the ethic now, which we'll get to, is amazing. You were in here at 1am this morning working. Have you always been like that? I'm in here at 1am every day, between 12 and 1. Um, it's the only way that I can get my uh, handle on the day, mm-hmm. organise the day for the guys, get my paperwork out of the way. Mm-hmm. And as you saw, I'm working on a little special projects in there. So I get to spend a bit of time on that and, and get to do what I want to do. Mm-hmm. And then during the day, because I'm held up with all the work commitments. The first road car that you bought yourself, not granddad's car. What was what was the first car that you could afford to buy? How much was it? What became of that car? My very, very first car was a Mini Miner. Uh, I cannot I, imagine you in a Mini Miner. <laughs> and I remember vividly, like, it, the CV joints were gone in the car and I'd had it for probably two months. I only paid, like, probably $50 for it. I think I can't remember the exact figure. But I went around a corner pretty quick and I remember getting pulled over by the coppers. And they said, is there any reason why you're going so fast? And I told them, I said, well, the front end's got a funny click in it and the only way to get it around the corner nicely is to go around (laughs) fast. 
So not only did I get a speeding fine, I ended up with a defect notice. So I learned to keep my mouth shut sure. from that day. Um, then after the mini, I got a HR Holden. Uh, sorry, no, it was a HD before I had before the, the HR. There was a full rust bucket. So I've had a lot of lot of uh, not so elegant cars before I started to get the good ones. Yeah. Speedway <coughs> stuff with, with sedans progresses. Ultimately, it would become Grand National. But how hard was that whole process? And when did you – was there ever a moment where you thought, oh, maybe I'm biting off more than I can chew here with the racing, or were you just – like a dog with a bone, I love this, I've, I've got to succeed at it. I think I was like everybody that um, takes up motorsport. You do whatever you have to to go racing to get that fix. Um, I loved my Speedway. I'll never forget the very first Grand National car that I bought. I bought that from uh, Colin Robinson at Nosetti Race Cars. Mm-hmm. I was so proud that we could afford this brand new race car. We took it out to the track to do some testing in it. Turn one, lap one, very first time in the car, left wheel turned left, right wheel turned right, into the wall. It annihilated this car like there was nothing left of this car. Yeah, to their credit, Button, the City Race Cars, they took it, they admitted it was their fault. Um, they rebuilt the car again. I think it was like a couple of months later, we were back out there with a brand new car again, but we done good in it that time. There's some cool names around in that, that racing scene back then, wasn't there? I mean, you, you know... To be a part of, of that, we talked very, very fondly about Liverpool before, but to race those kind of cars at Liverpool, special. Mate, it's when you look back at it now, when we were doing it, it was just like normal, just mm. a bunch of blokes out there running around in cars. But a lot of the names now are really big names, like Walter Giles has made it big in America with the NASCAR crew chief, Barry Graham. Yep. You know, he, he even run a school over there teaching people how to drive NASCARs, mm. yeah. Um, but a lot of those guys have all moved on to other stuff and Speedway sort of pilfered out in Australia, unfortunately, like NASCAR did. Mm. So that's why I got into the historic cars and it was probably the best thing I've ever done. We'll wrap up before we, we get to the, you know, amazing chapter with some of the historic cars that you've got as we sit in here around them, which is which is awesome. You did have a very unique sponsor on the, the Grand National car. Tell, tell the audience about that. Yeah, the sponsor was Salome's Escorts and, and they didn't pay in girls neither. Yeah, like, no, they, they were really good. He, he was a friend of mine, a close personal friend that owned the um, brothel. Uh, he was a good businessman and they've usually got a spare bit of cash that they need to get rid of and so they got rid of it in a race car. Yeah. The Speedway, did that um, that chapter of your racing, uh, I mean, there, there was a NASCAR 402, which I want to I get to, but, you know, when Liverpool very sadly closed down, I mean, the, the uh, just the, the progression and growth of housing in the area and, and so on, ultimately, and very sadly, saw it close. I mean, you can remember Mike Raymond commentating out there and some of the great events that we've talked about before, but was that a, a sort of a significant line in the sand for you as far as the, the Grand National stuff was concerned? Yeah, it was. It was towards the end there. It just wasn't the same. When it went from, it went from dirt to tar. Then it went back to dirt again, and it just wasn't the same when it went back to dirt. You know, like I don't know whether it was just me getting older or just nothing was the same as it was previously. Mm-hmm. So I just thought it was time to me to get time for me to get out of it, and I just pulled the pin on the the dirt racing. At that time, I would imagine, or not not uh, not too far beyond it. 
Bob Jane is pushing into to NASCAR and Oscar racing in this country and so on, the advent of the Thunderdome, places like Adelaide International. Cars also got to compete at uh, on the Gold Coast as well and off you went on that path, didn't you? Yes, we, um, we built a car. Well, first of all, we um, borrowed a car from George Elliott. Mm-hmm. He lent us a car to do... What was that? What did you have? We had a Pontiac and it was uh, Pontiac Grand Prix and it was sponsored by Attage Gold Company. Uh, back then, we'd done the um, 500 at um, Thunderdome mm-hmm. and our new car was finished then ready for Gold Coast, which was the um, West Coast wine cooler car. Mm-hmm. We had a really good run with West Coast there for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, we went up there and we done good in it, you know, considering that we weren't really road course drivers and we didn't even have the car set up properly. Yeah? Um, we tore it up, unfortunately, in one of the races, but... That usually happens in NASCAR. It's not often. It's not um, when you crash. It's just how often you crash in NASCAR. Yeah. What were those things like to manhandle? They they were uh, an addictive sounding thing. What were they like to hustle? Mate, they were the best race car I've ever driven. I quite often say now, if NASCAR was to come back to Australia, I'd jump in one. Wow. Whether we'd be competitive or not, mm. who knows? But mate, they are just driving them at like two hundred miles an hour and then coming into a corner with someone right next to you. It's you can't beat it. You really cannot beat that feeling. We are surrounded here by great pictures, great life memories of, of yours, of things that you've done along the way. And immediately over your shoulder here, I'm not sure if that's you, but there is a picture of a driver bailing out of a NASCAR. The fire is going to work at the track. What's the significance of, of that pic? Come on. That was Thunderdome's very, very first nighttime race. Yep. And we got punted into the wall at 200 miles an hour and the car exploded. We were were like a pinball bouncing off the top wall, bottom wall. Uh, The car was a mess. It it was probably one of the worst wrecks that they've ever had. I got out of it okay, thank Christ. Um, And they said that we were the first person to ever knock the AFL off the back page (laughs) on the Sunday morning. So we were pretty wrapped in that. Amazing. That place, when you go there now, it's, you know, grass is kind of growing in the wrong places and the tarmac is is bumpy in the, the wrong sort of spots as well. But there's still something magic, captivating about it. What was the Thunderdome like to race on? What what memories does it evoke for you? At the Thunderdome, I'd always let my guys drive the, or tow the car out yeah. under the tunnel into the middle yeah. and I'd walk from the pits out to where the scrutineering was into the middle because the atmosphere was just electric. You know, like we don't get the crowds that they do in America, but what we had here in Australia, it was just very, very awe-inspiring. What they did do successfully to, to push into that space was to bring some Americans out here in the early early part of that. What was that like? That was unbelievable. And we've heard stories, and we don't know how true it is, of them having small little sneaky Pete nitrous bottles in their leg and they're screwing it into the yeah we could sit here for the next two days and talk about all the cheating that goes on with NASCAR but and and that's another thing that with NASCAR there's a guy called Smokey Yannick in yeah. America he's a he was re- yeah really known for um for cheating or, or stretching the rules and which is really good we've been told we've been likened to Smokey Yannick in a few articles <laughs> With our um, interpretations, yeah, with, with our cars that we race in, there's street cars over there, so okay. it's 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 pretty awe inspiring when somebody says that. You know, I'm humbled by it, but yep. you know, but we um, we loved NASCAR, and as I said, if it happened back here again, we'd be back in it. It's a great great era. Um, 
<clears throat> a few people, I mean, Jimmy Richards and lots of others dabbled in it at that stage too, didn't yeah, they? Yeah, look at Jim, yeah, like, but anything, you, you put him in a go-kart, he's going to go fast against everybody else, you know what I mean? Like, he's just he's just a good driver. He's a good, good driver, so. You are here doing work on some beautiful, beautiful cars now, exclusive bodyworks, Porsche especially, but on other, other marks as well. What other marks do you work on? We're factory authorised to do McLaren, Rolls-Royce, Aston Martin and Tesla. Amazing. You set up here, what, early 2000s? Yeah, it'd be around, yeah, start of 2000, yeah. Yep. yeah. How, how many staff and what would you be sort of working on roughly car-wise at any given time? We have an average of 30 cars being worked on it at one time and we've got, um, I think there's 12, 14 of us here. If Ron's passion for Porsche seems infectious, what about funny man Shane Jacobson? You know, Kenny. He genuinely loves just about anything with an engine and wheels. And Shane has some good yarns from his time working on the Aussie version of Top Gear that you just gotta hear. We at that point learnt that the Lions thought it was three predators or something on approach. It just, the game changed instantly. And I remember saying at the start to this man, I think his name was Dale, and I said, so is there any guns or anything here if something goes wrong? And he said, we won't be shooting any of the staff here. <laughs> and I went, oh my God, he thinks the Lions are on staff. But I got his point, he was right. We're the visitors, the Lions work here, so no. So he said, but I've got a wooden stick. And I remember thinking, well, God, where's he going to shove that? I think God, he'd have to get pretty close to make that stop a lion from eating a human. <laughs> Even then, they may not be interested. The baboons were actually scarier. Fun times, sort of. Now it's back to Ron Goodman with Rusty sitting in amongst Ron's wicked Porsche collection. Does it become, um, in in the modern era, when you started very, very hands-on, you were great from a metalworking metal standpoint, as you talked about at school and so on, how much of it now is um, is, is cookie-cutter and, and reading stuff off, um, you know, online factory manuals and things, and how much do you want your staff to be very, very good in a, in a hands-on perspective like you were back in the day? And all, still are, and still are. All my guys are super talented. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, just the way that the whole business and trade has gone now, we need to have a lot of computers up around the workshop mm. so that when they do a job, they can go to that process. Everything's about process now. Mm-hmm. Whereas when we used to repair cars, it'd be just pull it out, straighten it up, it looks good, send it out. Mm. Now with the metals and the way that the cars are built with crumple zones and that, we have to follow really, really strict guidelines mm-hmm. and we have to learn a lot as we go along. So whereas before you could say you could pull that and make that gap right, mm. now you can't do that. Mm. There's a reason why or if, it, if it's bent and it's an aluminium chassis, you just replace it. Mm. Even if you think that you can repair it, no, we replace everything. So racing had been a a pursuit for you away from work. What about the first car that you treated yourself to in a in a restoration sense? What was the one that you first embarked on that you you did up with that real kind of sense of pride and enjoyed either just driving it around or or maybe even taking it to the track on occasion? That was my wide body 911 1974 model. I I put my heart and soul into that car. Built it like you would not believe. Um, we put nitrous oxide on that car, which back years and years and years ago, and it was done for me by Brad from Brad Speed Shops back then, and it was new to him too to put it onto a um, injected Porsche engine. 
We'd done all our due diligence. We put it all in. We thought, this is fantastic. First time that I drove it, I remember pushing the button and hearing a loud explosion thinking, wow, it's like it's like a rocket going off. Yeah, it was. It was the engine spread right across the road. It just blew this engine to smithereens. So that was a pretty expensive learning curve with that one. I'll bet. The fascination with the, the obsession, the love of Porsche came about when and, and how old were you and when was that moment where you gravitated to them and why? I've always loved Porsches, as long as I can remember. Um, but my very, very first one that I saw was a neighbour across the road had one. It was just a narrow body one, early 911. And I really liked running around in that car. And then when I was um, 17, I think it was, 18, um, I had a chance to buy a 911 and I had to sell my ute to get it. And everybody said, you don't sell a ute to buy a Porsche, you know, like, but I did. I sold my ute to get the Porsche because it was a bit of a mess. And that's the one that I'd done up and the affiliation's just been there ever since. I just love them. Incredible. There are, I mean, for lots of people, they are an aspirational machine ride and you have taken that to to another level in in, uh, in this man cave that we, we now sit. Can we talk about a few of them? If we can, you've talked about your your first one there. Do, do you do you find it hard to part with them? Have you? How many have you parted with along the way, and how how difficult is that? It's 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 hard to get me to start talking about selling it, but once I've made my mind up to sell one, it's gone. Okay, I, I don't regret anything. Uh, well, I take that back. My speedster that I had, which I'd had for ages. I sometimes think, geez, I shouldn't have got rid of that because they're worth so much now I can't get back into the market. Mm -hmm. And I used to like taking that out every now and then, you know. Okay. So that, my, my favourite one here would be the 54, the split windscreen, I think, because mm -hmm. we've been through so much together, you know, that car. Um, we've done a lot of racing overseas with it. We've been through a couple of crashes together. So, uh, yeah, that's probably my – I don't really have a favourite favourite, but that's my sentimental favourite. Cool. Let's talk a little bit about that car then because people can find online some, some documentaries. I think I've seen one on InFlight, for example, with some of the stories of international events that you've done from um, – Monterey Historics to, I mean, we're sitting here this morning after the conclusion of the Indy 500. You have been and raced at the Brickyard, haven't you? Yeah, we, we actually uh, was winning at the Brickyard and then I got into a pretty bad wreck. Uh, that was in my cabrio. Uh, we had to bring that car home. That was the car that I used to keep on the East Coast to race over there at Watkins Glen and Road Atlanta and Sebring and all those places. So I've, I've learned a really these, – these historic cars, the Porsches, have opened a lot of doors for me to race at different places in America. Mm -hmm. uh, if we would have been sticking here doing the Speedway, no, we wouldn't have been able to have the opportunities that they've opened up for me. When did you decide to go historic slash circuit racing, you know, actually turning a different direction, different corner? When NASCAR was finishing in Australia, mm -hmm. um, I had that big crash and it was either do we build another car – so we built the car up. We, we repaired it after that crash. Done a couple of races and then NASCAR started to falter. And then we thought, should we go to a new car or should we wait and see? We waited and seed and unfortunately NASCAR just folded in Australia. Um, so we thought, let's go road course racing. And my guys laughed because they used to always put shit on me saying that you can only turn left, you know, you think you can turn right. And, and it's true, I'd get lost, you know, like on Noval Track, I know exactly where to put the car, how fast you do it. It's, taken, it's been a, a fair um, learning curve, 
Yeah, and, and I've learned a lot from the guys like Dave Withers, Jeff Morgan. Yeah, they, they've helped me out. Even Terry Lawler, mm-hmm. yeah, like all these guys that know road course really well, mm-hmm. you just watch them, listen to them, and then they get pissed because you're faster than them. <laughs> <laughs> Was it one of them that half encouraged you to maybe come out to a, a race meeting and did... did you know what was the what was the moment where you went oh this is a bit of me you know maybe I could run a Porsche in this style of event and and so on. Well, I was actually in America and we watched um, one of the races over there, and this car was for sale, the uh, a fifty eight that I had, and it was race ready, ditto ditto as they said. So we bought the car and we remember we waited over there for ages to get it. Um, anyway, when it turned up here, we took it out there being race ready. And it lasted about two seconds. Yeah, so it wasn't race ready at all. Um, we spent some time on it, got it ready, and we do, were doing uh, regularity in that car. Mm-hmm. And we thought, this is fun. This is really fun. So obviously you can't just keep doing regularity, so we had to buy another car for another class. And then we thought, yeah, let's go to America. So we bought another car to race in America. <laughs> and it just morphed from there, you know. So. There is a fascination. I mean, there's all kinds of different models here, which we'll, which we'll get to. But 356, you've done some... Uh, good, uh, not not boundary pushing. That's not the right word for it. What I'm what I'm trying to say is you you have you have developed to an unbelievable level with them, haven't you? Oh, absolutely. And and a lot of that is my guys are very very innovative. Innovative. Uh, Gary that does our engines, he's always thinking of different ways to do stuff. Um, our 54, we also hold the lap record for its class at Bathurst. It's actually the fastest 356 to ever go around Bathurst. I remember coming down the Conrod and there's that little hill part that you go over. Yep. And Just before the chase kind of thing. Yeah, right? we'd, we'd put taller gears into that car and we were motoring along and all I could think of was if this turns pear shape, I'm going to be like a beetle on the roof spinning around <laughs> with my little feet in the air. So yeah, like, but no, we've, we've done pretty good with that. It, um, we broke an, an axle in it. It's, it's pretty true, like with Bathurst, I was getting lost a lot. Mm-hmm. Like you need a lot of lap time up there. Mm-hmm. Luffy once again come around with me in the Cayenne and gave me a bit of a guidance. You talk about Warren here or Ian? Yeah, yeah Warren. Yep, yep. We actually bo- broke the lap record by 20-something seconds. Okay. So we're pretty happy with that. Amazing. Yeah. You've got a connection that sort of dates back with the Luffs too, don't you? Oh, yeah, mate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, his dad, Ian, I remember the first time we ever run NASCAR at Oran Park back mm-hmm. then. And I said to Ian, do you mind if I come out to one of your days and bring my mate's Commodore out and Ian just show me a few of the lines through there? Yeah, there's no worries at all. So we're coming down the straight and he's saying, not yet, as far as braking's concerned, not yet, not yet, now. And I jumped on the brakes and there was no brakes. So we've just gone straight through the infield. I'm trying to steer it. This is it. South Circuit, so off the bottom to the left hand. Yeah, yeah. I'm trying to steer it and, and Ian's got the handbrake trying to slow it down. And when we did finally stop, he looked at me and he goes, that ain't petrol you can smell. I can never. <laughs> or brakes. <laughs> it wasn't brakes neither. Oh. Uh, but some good memories out at Oran Park too with Luffs and, and Warren is an incredible young driver, you know, yeah. like incredible. Uh, he just recently drove one of my cars at the Time Attack event with me. Amazing. Tell me about that because he, he uh, I know from having seen him just last weekend at a at a Porsche uh, meeting and then what he's put on social media, he loved that experience too. Oh, man. He, he was beaming and so was I, yeah, like to, to um, go out there with him and, and you know that he's just playing with you, you know what I mean? Like I'm driving the 356 as hard as I possibly can and he's probably yawning as he's going around in the 906. <laughs> but no, we had a great time together and we put on a good show, you know, yeah. it was really, really good. 
the let's come back again to 356 if we can. What about stuff in the development that hasn't worked or has broken and how, you know, how you bounce from that? If you look around here, you'll see engine blocks everywhere, yeah. yeah. You've got to break a lot to learn mm-hmm. um, and we've broken a lot and it's cost us a lot, but it's not always about the money. You know, if you want to be a trailblazer in what you're doing, which we have been with the 356, we've got a pretty good rep worldwide as far as we're concerned with what we're doing with the 356. So we've had a lot of failures, a hell of a lot of failures. And we've tried a lot of things outside the box that people said wouldn't work. Mm-hmm. We've tried it and they're right, it didn't work. But unless you try it yourself, you don't know. No. Yeah. What's the, you know, is that the car? I mean, there's 911s here, there's uh, early generation cup cars and more. What's the thing about the 356 that you love so much? What is the, the, uh, the connection there? It's, it's the feeling that you get when you do go fast. Like someone will talk to you and, and you're not supposed to go fast in that car, but mm. we're going fast. Mm. You get in a cup car and people expect you to be fast mm. or you could even put a novice driver into a cup car and they'd still do okay mm. against another novice driver. Mm. But in the 356, when you're out there with Mustangs and you're out there with Ferrari GTOs and you know, the really expensive cars and you're beating them, it gives you a sense of accomplishment. Yeah. You, you have raced, and I know you won't oversell this, so, I mean, you raced Patrick Long, for example, who people will know, and he, he raced um, a car with uh, with quite a good connection there in the United States, and you guys went, went toe-to-toe, didn't you? Yeah, and, and if you watch it, uh, the car was owned by Stanley Gold, who's the boss of Disneyland, so there was no expense spared on the car. Mm-hmm. Um, we actually, it it's was pitted two down from us and when they started it I looked at Gary and Gary looked at me and we went whoa yeah like is that real you know like it just sounded so good the engine in it uh yeah we beat him and we beat him very very well it wasn't just by a little bit Mm. um yeah we've we've raced against a lot of the high-end people in America and they're all really down-to-earth people yeah that scene is Remarkable. I mean, we have a we have a great car culture in this country, but just, it's just pure numbers, isn't it? I mean, the population of America and and so on. When you when you go to those places, a legendary racetracks, but also to the the roll up of people and cars is, uh, I mean, I'm salivating at the thought of some of them, mate. There, there's some remarkable cars there. Every one of my guys that have come our way with us racing are blown away with the cars that we race against. Mm. It's the sort of cars that you see on TV shows or the sort of cars that you see in magazines. They're not the ones you actually get to race against. Mm. And over there, they're not, um, to put it in a, in a blunt way, I suppose, we going over there, we're the paupers. When you look at a lot of the cars that race over there, you think, oh, this is a good car, our car. It's nothing. It pales into insignificance with some of the cars that we race against, you know. It becomes a big logistical challenge because you, you know, you've talked about keeping cars there and, and so on when you've gone and, and competed in, in that scene. But there's been moments where you've had to air freight stuff either way, hasn't there? Oh, absolutely. And, and even the last time we had Rensport here, I had to fly the car back from America because we had a pretty bad accident in it. Mm-hmm. So it had to fly back from America to get fixed. If we didn't fly back, it wouldn't have got fixed. They've lost it twice going over going over to America. How does that phone call go? Sorry, uh, sorry sir. <laughs> and uh, I had to chase it. And the last time the tracking people rung up and told us and what we worked out that they were doing, they were charging us full freight for the, the container going over but they were bunny hopping it. They'd take it off at New Zealand, 
put it into another ship which went to somewhere else and then they take it to America. Mm. So, but And they took it off to New Zealand and forgot to put it on another ship. So our car was sitting in there. So, wow. yeah, well, I remember one of the phone calls was, um, we don't care if you get an Alton off to pick up that container, the car has to be in America. You know, like we gave them enough time. They've always made it in the, in the, in the nick of time, but they've always made it. That's the end of part one of my podcast with legendary Aussie Porsche enthusiast Ron Goodman. You get a sense from his words and style that much of his talking is done through the cars and on track. Now, you couldn't come to this awesome man cave and check out the collection without starting some of them up. That's ahead in part two, which is all loaded up in the Rusty's Garage Library and ready for you to enjoy right now. Jump back when you're ready and fire it up. From the massive logistics missions of getting his cars safely to the US, to crashes, those in the collection he's got a soft spot for, and much, much more.